You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, so this morning, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you as a gift from us today. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Two of you are great. It's fantastic. Uh, So my name is uh, Ty Gaston. If you don't know me, uh, I'm one of the staff members here at Providence Community Church. Um, I'm excited to bring the word this morning. Uh, I don't get a chance to do it often, maybe four or five times a year, but when I do, I am uh, uber eager. I'm way too excited to be up here right now. Um, so a couple weeks ago, uh, our students, I want to update you on this. They, they Scott's great. He's excited. Um, our students got back from summer camp uh, that we that you guys, a lot of the people here, raised money for, and uh, and I just wanted to give you guys an opportunity to see a recap of the video from this past couple weeks. So here we go. Forbidden fruit seems so edible, eh? You try resist like a lyrical strain. My mama told me it's spiritual, eh? So I'm on the armor like I'm Curry, look. You cannot bear with the boy, yeah. This is not the jungle book. Accuse me, no, he would. Uh, I just covered by the blood. Thinking about the way that the digital serpent crushing like Valentine's Day. sick with the mission, cross with the finish. Don't try to slide in my DM. OJ Simpson with the defense. Leg of fire saying knee in last weekend, but not today, say. Hey, I think you get in my drift. 
It was a, uh, so there was a student after the last service who didn't get to go, but he came up to me and, and he was like, man, how are you going to rub it in my face that I didn't get to go? And I was like, I took some time. I really wanted to minister to him and I told him, sucks to suck. So, um, so anyways, the, I wanted to update you guys because this was a, it was a fantastic summer camp. A lot of our students are really like, it's not that summer camp is special in and of itself, that there's some like special manifestation of God there. It's just that there's a time where we get to separate from the normal busyness of life and have this margin where we can really address what's going on in the soul. And that's exactly what gets to happen at camp. So we had a lot of students confess sin, come to know Jesus. It was really, it was really an awesome experience. So uh, I just wanted to update you guys on that because a lot of you uh, with the bake sale that happened prior to it uh, gave a lot of money. And so we basically had students that were able to go on this really prestigious summer camp for five days for $50 a piece. So it was, uh, it was awesome. If you aren't, if you aren't a part of what happened, what's happening with the student ministry and you'd like to just come find Scott Mahan or myself and we'd love to plug you in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us and then we will get started. Would you pray with me? Father God, we lift you up this morning. Uh, we make the decision right now not to hide, not to recluse, but to submit all of our worries, all of our anxieties before you. God, this morning, would you give us peace? Would you give us understanding? Would you fill our hearts with joy as we look to you for direction? So God, let your word be a light into our feet. And it's the only truth that we have that we can rely on. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. Okay, so we are continuing our series uh, in the book of Ephesians 4 through 6 called A Life Together. So if you don't know this, the book of Ephesians uh, chapters 1 through 3 is all about what God has done for us. 4 through 6 is what we do for him in light of that. So last week, Eric did a great job of walking through Ephesians 5 through 17. As a, a guy who likes to preach and teach myself, that was my original text I was going to do. And so when I found out I wasn't doing 14 verses and only doing three, I was, I was pumped. Uh, but I, I felt like Eric did a fantastic job uh, teaching about what it means to put to death the idols of our heart and align our life ethic with God's. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to live a life in the Spirit and what results out of that as we pursue Christ. However, I want to give a precursor to this because it's really important. It is impossible for us to move forward in this sermon. It's impossible for us to pursue life in Christ and life in the Spirit if you have not made any kind of initiation on putting to death the self and the selfish agendas that you may have. For example, there's a graphic that's going to go up behind me. This is called, in the theological world, this is called the J-curve. So in other words... I'm going to try and get out of y'all's way. In other words, we have our current state right there. The only way to get alive in Christ is through death to self. It's the same path that Christ took. He didn't just appear resurrected and, per and perfect as it was, but instead he died to himself, died, went into the ground, three days later rose again and is now alive. For us, we take the same path. We cannot go any other way than what the same way that Christ went, but... It's important to remember that this is the way of discipleship and sanctification for us. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, God calls himself a people to live this way, to die to self and to become alive in him. And the only way you do that is by following the commands and imperatives that God gives us. Now, anytime somebody in the Bible deviated from this, life was forever altered. So for example, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God. God gives 
He praises Abel. He gives specific command to Cain to change, and he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He murders his brother, and he is cast out from that point on. You have Lot's wife. They were told to flee and to not look back. What does she do? She looks back. Life is, well, she dies. <laughs> not life is different. It is different because she doesn't, her heart doesn't beat anymore. But it's, you also have Saul and the Amalekites. So Saul was commanded to go and push the Amalekites out, but he doesn't. And he was told, and this is kind of intense, but he was told to go in and kill everybody in sight and kill everything that they own. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he saves some stuff for himself and then blames it on the people. And what happens from that point on? Well, that's the beginning of the end for Saul and the spirit of God is removed from him and he's given a spirit of torment. You have Jonah who was told to go and preach to Nineveh and instead of doing it, at least initially, he decided to flee as if he could outrun God, gets in a boat and ends up having to get thrown off that boat to get swallowed up by a fish. Now, he does recorrect, but his life was different from that point on. And just when you thought it was just the Old Testament, enter Ananias and Sapphira on the scene where in the book of Acts where they were told to give to God, but they did give, but they held back some for their own and then lied about it. And then boom, they dropped dead. Now, this is important because, and I'll put the second graph up there. What we try to do, the road that is commonly traveled is that we try to go from current state to alive in Christ without going to death to self. We want to put lipstick on a pig instead of make our lives great. We want what's convenient for us and also what God would have for us. We want the benefits. We want to consume the benefits of what God has for us, but not die to self and align our ethic with God's. But anytime that we do this, we don't actually get alive in Christ. It's, it's through death to self that we actually get to experience this. And so I want to be very clear that it's what we're about to talk about this morning is there's some amazing truths, but we can't get there if we don't go through the right process. See, we can't get in this place where we're playing this bartering game with God. We don't get to experience life in the spirit on our own terms. Partial obedience is disobedience. That's true for my children at home. If I tell you to do two things and you do one thing, yes, you were obedient, but you weren't fully obedient. God desires our full devotion. So before we move forward, we need to remember this. God isn't merely trying to get our acts together. Yes, I do think that's a byproduct of worshiping Jesus, but that is not the end. He's not trying to get us to act right. God is not trying to make bad people good. He's making dead people alive. Let me repeat that. God isn't making bad people good. He's calling dead people alive. We'll look at that later as well. So let's jump right in. Verse number 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul is giving us two imperatives here. And these two commands are going to set up the rest of the morning for us. So he gives two commands. The first, don't get drunk with wine. And two, be filled with the Spirit. So I want to start with the low-hanging fruit and then zoom out to the, under, to, to the overlying principle that's here. First, we have to be careful when it comes to the topic of alcohol because there are two sides of the fence where it could go sideways really quickly. Uh, the first one is legalism. So this is where we say that all alcohol is bad and that no one should drink it. Well, the only problem with that stance is the Bible. And Jesus' life in particular because he chose to make his, his name known and enter into his time of ministry by doing what? Turning water to wine. 
throwing a party, taking large vats of water, making sure that people have had enough wine to drink. Proverbs also gives us several different examples of the benefits of wine and what it can do for our body. But while legalism is on one side of it, license is on the other, which license says we take the inch that God gave, uh, that God gave to us, that the Bible gives us, that the Bible gives us wine and says it's a good thing and that we should enjoy it. And that's actually good for the body. But if you take that good thing, and as I've heard before, you make it a God thing, it's now a bad thing. When you take wine and alcohol to be the way that you cope, the way that you deal with sin, trial, and struggle, that's when it becomes bad. When you take the inch and you run a mile. Proverbs also talks about what happens when you use alcohol incorrectly. Proverbs 20 verses, verse 1 says this, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It is never God's will for a Christian to be drunk, to enjoy alcohol, yes, in moderation, but it's never to be in drunkenness. It is a sin, but I do want you to know that if that is your struggle this morning, I don't want you to hear condemnation, but rather hear a plea hear a plea to run to something that's not gonna, that, that will no longer master you, but run to your great master, Jesus. Now, zooming out a little bit, drunkenness also leads to other sins because it makes a person lose control. This is why Paul refers to it as debauchery, because this type of behavior leads to a life that is chained to your base desires. It reduces you to someone who can't control how you live your life, but instead you just start doing what you feel. Ultimately, this, the attitude behind this is one of self-worship. Debauchery means that you are controlled by a heart that seeks to please the self and not God. While in contrast, while drunkenness makes us lose control, he tells us to be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes us self-controlled and filled with a deep sense of joy. The Spirit makes you like Jesus, our model for self-control and all other virtues of the Spirit. Ultimately, Paul is telling us to flee what leads to death, which is debauchery, and to run towards fields with li- what fills us with life, which is spirit. Being filled with the spirit leads to a very particular type of life, and we're going to talk about that here moving forward. For the Christian in the room right now, this is what this means for you. For one, I don't want you to fall into the trap of this is just who I am. Sometimes there are sins that we just can't shake, and we just we just submit to them and we just say, oh, well, this is just who I am. This is my thorn in the flesh. I will deal with this the rest of my life. The problem with that is that the gospel has come to free you from that. The problem for that is that for freedom, Christ has set you free. And because of the, because of the spirit, you can walk in self-control. You do because of the spirit, because of the gospel, you can say no, you can do it. So now anytime you sin, it's not because you're bound to it like, a, like someone who is not a Christian, you're no longer bound to that. Instead, you choose to do it. So that needs to be clarified. But for the non-Christian, this is what a window into the kingdom looks like. And so this, it looks like this. It looks like you, don't have, you aren't bound to the, to the vices that you have. If you're not a Christian in the room, my plea for you is that you would first see that there are things that master your life that you just don't have any control over. And that it's hard, to, it's hard to work out how to actually change that. And you try every single program and every single step and it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work because you are bound to it. And so we, for you, I hope that this is a window into the kingdom for what freedom from that looks like. And don't hear me say that, like, 
I'm not trying to be one of the like kids on the playground that says, I got a better toy and you can't have it. That's not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to say that there's a better gift and better opportunity for you. So everything Paul says after this verse is describing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. He says, do not give yourself over to wine. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's now going to start describing what that looks like. Leads me to point number one. Life together in the Spirit creates a heart of worship. So verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, this is juxtaposing against what he's already said in in chapter number 4, verse 29, which we addressed in an earlier sermon, that you are not to have any corrupting talk, but only use speech that which is good for building up. So, what does he say? He's saying, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying that we must now live our lives like Disney musicals. I don't think that he's doing that. And I, I know that I can't be the only one that thinks that that's weird, right? Like you watch a Disney, a Disney movie, somebody asks a question, they start singing, and then they just jump right back into conversation like that song just didn't happen. You know, like you, could you imagine just sitting at Chili's and then asking somebody how they're doing? They start singing this little heart cry ballad that takes place and then they stop and they're like, I'm good. What? No, it's weird. Try it. I I don't know. Maybe it works. Try it. Next time you go to Chili's, start singing. See if, anyways, what I do think he is saying though, is that singing has a particular way of glorifying God and edifying one another that no other method does. And think about it. We sing everywhere. We sing at sports events. We sing at holidays, at concerts. I mean, if you've ever been to a really good concert, you know what I'm talking about. The the best concert I I ever went to was a King's Kaleidoscope concert. And granted, let me be fair, that is a Christian concert. So maybe there's, there's other elements of it. But I can tell you, when you have everyone in the room singing the same song to the same tune with the same heart of the same mind, it's powerful. It's powerful. There's something about music that unites people. And as Christians, we don't just have a song to sing, but, the, but an anthem to bear. For Christians... This means that we were once far off, separated from God and without hope. We were once enemies of God and are now friends of God. We were once orphaned, now we are adopted. We were once dead, now we are alive. Singing has a, is a major way that us as believers together get to express that truth in a way like no other. It's important now, though, that we notice that Paul said, addressing one another. That he's not talking about an isolated song that gets sung by one person alone, but that collectively it happens together in a corporate manner. So this last year, we saw, uh, we saw COVID hit our, uh, hit our country, really hit the world, but the church was threatened like I personally, really no one alive has ever seen before. We we had this level of isolation. So between like COVID, between the media, between social media, there is so much isolation that took place that it was, it was difficult to really understand who the body of Christ was and how you fit in it. Because now all of your community was had through a screen. And so we, we lost this element of corporate worship. And we started to say like, oh, well, I can worship in my heart in my home. 
And yes, you can. You can, absolutely. Jesus did say that no longer will one person worship on this mountain or another, but that they'll worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, you can worship in your heart, in your home, but that's not, that's, if you just do that, that separates you from the body of Christ. It isolates you, which is not what we are meant to be at all. But conversely, so it's, it's both and. You must both worship in the heart and worship together. If you do one without the other, you're missing it. So I don't want to just pin the, the home worshipers in, the, in a corner. If you just come to church but don't worship in the heart, it's just as bad. Because Paul saying he, that whenever we sing psalms together, we're addressing one another. We are ministering to one another. And if you're just attending church, but you're not singing or worshiping from the heart, you're not contributing to the family of worship here. So it's, it's a both and. We must both worship in the heart and worship together. And this being together, being in person has major implications of the person of Christ that we have to consider and require us to fight for being together. So for example, when the issue of Zen came into place, God could have just handled everything right then and there. I mean, he did do it once, right, with Noah. He did do it. He handled everything just as had. But he could have done that again, just wiped everything new and just started over. But he didn't do that. What did Christ do? He came in person. He incarnated himself. He came in the flesh. He came in person, meaning he came to live a life, to die, to build and make the church so that we could worship together in person. So being together with other saints, singing to the glory of God, edifying to one another is a way of us contributing to the health of each and one of our souls. That when we sing, we are ministering to one another. And that it's clear from this passage why corporate worship is vitally important. And that it shouldn't just be really, it shouldn't be easy for us to just skip church. It shouldn't be. That, that should be a difficult decision to make. Sure, yes, we have four Sundays a month. Yeah, you miss one, that's fine. But at the end of the day, that shouldn't be an easy decision because we should, we should cherish and hold dear to our hearts the opportunity to worship alongside one another because even being together, if you don't realize that the Lord is shaping and molding you by just being present. So why not curl up on a Sunday with a box of chocolates and watch worship on a computer or TV? Why not? Because that doesn't allow you to do what this verse is teaching vertically, when we worship, the Spirit prompts us to sing with our whole being to the Lord Jesus. But this should lead us to worship horizontally in the presence of other believers. Bob Coughlin, who's a renowned worship leader, says it this way. The predominant emphasis of Scripture is believers confessing common beliefs together. The book of Revelation doesn't give the impression that Jesus died for independent soloists, people who would sing on their own clouds or in different sections of the renewed earth by themselves. He died to redeem a universal choir. Worshiping together to the glory of God helps us minister to one another with timeless truths and truthless time. All right, let's keep moving. Point number two, life together in the spirit creates a heart of gratitude. 
starting in verse 18 again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice two very important words that we'll focus on, always and everything. The first one, listen, Paul isn't asking you to be masochistic. He's not asking you to just like, as life throws its flame balls at you, that you just accept it and wear it, wear it with a smile on your face. I don't know if you ever watched that movie, Happy Gilmore, but there's a moment where he steps into a batting cage preparing for the hockey season and just proceeds to take the pitching machine straight to the chest to prepare for hard hits. God's not asking you to do that. <laughs> Amen. But... There is an element, a bend of the heart that God is asking us to have. Always means that you have a heart posture towards God that is similar to praying without ceasing. It's that in every moment you recognize the, the need and gratitude and good graces that God has given you. If, if you really want to know where you're at on this, pay attention to your prayers. In other words, where do your prayers begin? Do they begin with your troubles, with your needs and your wants? Or do they begin with thanksgiving? Do they begin with a heart of gratitude? Do they begin thanking God for everything he's given you? It's a, it's a really good lit, litmus test to see where your heart is as far as a heart of gratitude goes. Now, the last thing he says, or last word that he used we want to focus on, he said, always giving thanks to God, always and for everything. Now, this, is, this can be difficult, right? Because it didn't say some things. It didn't say the good things. It said everything. Everything that comes your way, giving thanks to God for it all. And this life of gratitude is impossible apart from Christ. It, do, it doesn't mean that you can't be grateful apart, apart from God. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that suffering that you inevitably will see and witness will have no purpose. If you're not in Christ, this is impossible to have gratitude for everything because all the suffering, all the trials, everything that you go through is not going to have any purpose at all. It's for the non-Christian, for the non-believer, you get all the hell with no hope. So I, I've never really understood the like, oh, because there's suffering in the world, God must not exist. Well, if that God, ex God not existing doesn't help the suffering. It's still there. You still have to experience the hell that comes with it. But God actually provides the hope. He provides something that we can grab onto. He provides the light at the end of the tunnel. He provides a better world that we are looking towards. A life of gratitude knows that at the end of the day, everything, good and bad, has meaning. Our ability to understand or not understand the meaning behind bad things that come our way does not mean that it doesn't have purpose. Romans 8.28 says that it confirms this. It tells us that for those that love God and for the good of God's purpose, everything is working together for your good. Everything. The same word. It's the same exact word. And a heart of gratitude is first understood against this backdrop of salvation, that sin has come our way and that the worst 
amount of suffering and trial we could have ever experienced is the punishment for sin which Christ took for us. And so when you, when you know that that's been solved, that it is finished on the cross, that your punishment for sin was taken care of, and that you are walking in obedience with Christ, you can be sure of one thing. You can be sure that God is near. You can be sure that he's working everything together for your good. Now, I don't want to make light of it because I know there are some stories that are absolutely deplorable, many of whom I have sat across the table from here in this room. Countless stories of people who have lost loved ones, people who have lost children, people that have lost jobs, family situations that just seem impossible to fix. Sin that you can't shake. There are so many, I, I could go on and on and on. But John 15 tells us, tells us that in the same way that a branch cannot exist apart from the vine, so we as believers cannot exist apart from Christ. And he does that because, he says that because at the end of John 15, he tells us that he does it so that, and we need to be in Christ because his joy will be in us and that our joy will be complete. And so you may not know why you are suffering, but there is one thing you do know if you are a Christian in the room, and that's that we worship a Savior that was obedient in a way that we could not be, died the death that we deserve, and rose on the third day triumphantly so that in the midst of chaos and suffering, you can have peace. And that's promised on this side of heaven. Moreover, not just peace, but joy, and that joy would be complete. So I want to admit a little bit of a struggle for me because I'm in ministry and I've been doing this for a long time now, it's difficult sometimes for me to read the Bible and not think about how I would teach it. And that's not, that's not inherently a bad thing. It's just that sometimes I can struggle to get to that like devoted part of my heart that this is for me and not for other people. And so one thing that I've, I've been trying to do for the past, um, I don't know, three or four weeks or so, I've, I've, just, I've just been trying to read a Psalm a day and pray through it. And so one of the, a couple weeks ago, one of the Psalms that came up was Psalm 13. And I thought about it as I was studying for this sermon. And I'm going to read it for you guys. It says this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I wonder how many people in this room have said that very same prayer. I wonder how many people have asked God, how long, how long is this going to stay the way it is? How long am I going to suffer? How long am I going to continue to feel pain? How long am I going to feel like you're just not around? And that we may say with, the, with David, light up my eyes. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here's the key verse. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, your love that never ends. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And look at this. This may sound familiar. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So it's David who says, God is so far from me. David who is getting spears hurled at him from a daily basis from his king. David who is experiencing suffering after suffering. It's the same David that is saying, but I will rejoice because you have dealt bountifully with me. It's because if we look at this from a perspective of 
I was lost and now I've been found, everything can be viewed in light of that. When we know that God is for us and that he's a good father who's working everything for our good, and if you're a parent in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There are so many things that my kids get mad at me for taking away, but they don't know the implications of their decision. And so I take it away out of their safety. But if they knew what I knew, they would gladly agree with me, gladly. God's the same way. If we knew what God knew, and we have to acknowledge that we don't first, but if we knew what God knew, we would gladly accept anything that comes our way. Okay, last point. Point number three, life together in the spirit creates a heart of humility. Starting in verse 18 again. And do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're going to spend a significant amount of time in the next couple of weeks talking about what submission, love, and respect looks like in particular relationships, in the context of relationships. But Paul gives a precursor here and says that there's a level of humility and submission that we must all have with one another. And that in doing so, this is out of reverence for Christ, who is our Lord, who is our King. There should be, in the life of a believer a life that looks different, a life that has a heart of self-forgetfulness about the lives, about their lives for the lives of others. And this is so important because many people, many Christians sensationalize their ideas about how the spirit works inside of their heart and mind. But here we see that when the spirit is active in our life and we are filled with the spirit together, that it leads, to, it leads us into community where practical acts of love are demonstrated to one another. We learn that the spirit that fills us is a humble spirit and those who truly are filled with him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of the most evident characteristics of the fact that Christ and the spirit is in them when they submit to one another. And this word submit, it means to arrange underneath. It was a military term used um, to the subordination of soldiers in an army to discuss those, uh, to basically for those of a superior rank. And, but here at, as believers, there is no superior rank. For us, we are choosing and actively to submit to one another, to arrange ourselves underneath someone to both serve them, care for them, love them to any accountability, to be willing to be heard that we're not walking in step with the gospel. And that's not easy. But those that are filled with the spirit let go of their selfish agendas and live in submission and for the good of others. The easiest way for us here at Providence is through community groups or home groups for us, groups of people that gather to walk in life alongside one another. Having people that you can confess sin to one another is one of the best ways and easiest ways for you to walk in a life of submission with other people. See, we have this culture that is constantly trying to establish an advantageous position. Constantly. I mean, whether it's in politics, whether it's at your job, whether regardless, you could pinpoint it every single place. It even happens in the church where people are trying to get this vantage point so that way they can be in a better position than the other person. And the problem with that is that it's so far removed from how Christ lived his life. 
who was God of the universe and made himself a servant. Who was God of the universe and took the act of a slave and washed his disciples' feet as they walked in the door. It was so like dumbfounding that Peter wouldn't even let him do it until Christ threatened him. We can't live our lives in this place where we have to outdo one another, where we have to be better. The life of the Christian looks significantly different. And the life of a Christian looks to Jesus who chose to live a vulnerable life when he did not have to. It's the last thing, and I'll close with this. Notice the Godward nature of this text that we just read, these three verses. I'll read it over again, and I'll emphasize the parts that I'm talking about. And do not get drunk with wine, for, the deba- for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, God's word, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Even in three verses, there are six different commands for us to incline our hearts to God. And the temptation will be to try and clean up your act yourself. The temptation will be that you will just behave better. But this is not God's only desire. Remember, he is, after, he is not after to make bad people good. He is making dead people alive. Don't run to self, run to Jesus. Self cannot do anything. Jesus can do everything. Life together in the spirit begins, is sustained, and ends with believers running to Jesus. He is the one that provides purpose, and he is the only source of life that we have. And so my hope for you this morning is that in this next time of worship that we have, I mean, we just talked about singing. So if we can't sing well after this sermon, and I don't know when we can. But my hope for you is that this next time of worship is not routine. It's not just the way that we close out a gathering, but that it's from the heart. And that as you sing from the heart, you are ministering and edifying everyone around you, including those that don't believe. So as you worship in this next moment, do so knowing that you're a dead person that's been made alive. If you'll stand, I'll pray for us.